First of all, it is an incredible joy to be back here with you all. Um, it's a joy because I recognize so many faces here. Maybe even more of a joy to recognize so few faces here, though. Um, it is wonderful to see what God has done in amazing ways for this church. Um, if you've only come in the last couple of years, you didn't go through COVID here, um, God works wonders uh, bringing this place through that season. And to see the fruit that is being born because of the faithfulness of so many people in this room uh, is moving to me. Uh, today, I get a chance to add on to your sermon series about Proverbs. And Proverbs is a wonderful book. Um, Dave, I know last week, talked about Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8, which is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And today we're going to be continuing this, talking about friendship. But first, I want to talk about something happening around us in the world. An epidemic of loneliness. So where are we? What is going on? Well, this year, the Surgeon General of the United States released an 81-page document titled, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. And here's a choice excerpt. Loneliness is far more than just a bad feeling. It harms both individuals and societal health. It, it is associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. The mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day, and even greater than those associated with obesity and physical inactivity. And the harmful consequences of a society that lacks social connection can be felt in our schools, workplaces, and civic organizations where performance, productivity, and engagement are diminished. The pandemic brought into stark relief what has been slowly occurring for decades. The central structures of our communities together are washing away like topsoil from a strong rain. Marriage rates have plummeted, one in three children are in single-parent homes. I think I should have a graphic here. Um, and one quarter grew up without a father. Now, since 2003, this chart shows this. And by the way, we're going to be talking about some social data today. Um, but I promise it doesn't end as depressing as it begins. <laughs> so since 2003, the average person spent 20 fewer hours less per month with friends substantially less time with extended family, and far more time, 24 hours, an entire day, completely isolated. And so it probably shouldn't be surprising that the U.S. birth rate has plummeted. Now, in particular, where I'm from in New Hampshire is actually the second lowest birth rate in the country. We're just barely edged out by Vermont and closely followed, I believe, by Massachusetts. This is not something that has happened all at once. Uh, it's a long process. In 2000, Robert Putnam outlines the contours of this phenomenon in a book that he calls uh, Bowling Alone. And so we often talk about church attendance rates just being a function of people not believing or desiring faith anymore, but it also is very much a function of people simply not getting together at all, not associating with each other, bowling groups being the thing referenced in the title. 
And that was in the year 2000. That was before the internet came of age, before the iPhone, before Instagram and Facebook. The Census Bureau this year showed that over 30% of all US adults have anxiety and depression symptoms. And, if, and that rate grows to 51% for people 18 to 24. 51%. Perhaps not surprisingly, drug overdoses doubled from 2019 to 2021 in the United States. In the words of the poet W.B. Yeats, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimed tide is loosed. And everywhere, the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. It does not, not ring slightly true in our ears. OK, enough doom and gloom. Simply note that all the anecdotes and observations of people talking about civil society being eroded or people not having friends or sure feels like things aren't the way that they used to be, it's all backed by hard data. It's not just anecdotes. It's stuff that we can really see. And it's literally killing us as a society. So much so that the Surgeon General is talking about it. But much of this also comes down to what our image of the good life is what we hold up as an ideal for living. And in the West, we emphasize self-reliance and autonomy and self-actualization. Our technology do deepens these veins by allowing algorithms to cater to our every preference and whim, forcing us into little echo chambers online where we spend increasingly more time. Broken families breed other broken families and pain. And the ability to find work across the state, country, or world make turnover something that all of us feel. I mean, here in Boston, that's more true than anywhere. It's very difficult to have longevity and st stability in places like Boston. Yet, is that what humans are? Is that what we're made for? Is that the way that God created us to be? isolated, self-actualizing atoms. In, our, in, the, in uh, Genesis 2, we hear the story of God making Adam and seeing that he was alone. And the Lord God said, It is not good for man that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And the words helper there is really should be translated like ally. It is a word used for military allies. And in, in fact, most often in the Old Testament, it refers to God's own self as the ally of Israel in combat, an ally without which victory could not be achieved. We are meant to have allies in life. People in whom we find real and meaningful connection, belonging and shared purpose. Such that when Adam sees Eve, he says, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. In other words, you are like me, but also not me. We are made to be with others. And isolation in the Old Testament often 
goes before or follows great areas of sin and death. Eve is isolated from Adam when she is deceived and eats the fruit. Cain is isolated relationally from his brother when he kills him. Friendship and companionship are not simply nice things. They are fundamental to what it means to have shalom. True and abundant peace, wholeness, and holiness of life in the kingdom of God is shared between people. And so today I want to focus on a set of proverbs around friendship. Wisdom herself directs us toward full and meaningful relationships. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18, 24. A man of many companions will come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 27, 6. Friends, uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I'm going to read that one again. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And oil and perfume make a heart glad. And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. And so today we're going to take some of these things together and think about what friendship looks like practically with wisdom, but also what that specifically means for Church of the Cross and for us who are in the body of Jesus. When taken together, there are a couple of things that emerge from these Proverbs. First, not all friends are alike. In fact, Aristotle outlines three forms of friendship. Friends of utility, so picture people you gain mutual benefit from, like a study partner um, in a calculus class, who have you know, similar goals and you, you genuinely will each other's good, um, but the friendship is circumscribed by the nature of what you're getting from one another, a study partner, so utility. Next are friendships of pleasure. Um, people who have fun together. Say they pay, play pickup soccer together um, or do other things which are fun uh, together. And finally, and most importantly, friendships of character. Friendships of character consist in relationships where the parties admire one another admire one another for their virtue, and ultimately admire one another for their own love of the capital G good, the good, the true, and the beautiful. You admire somebody for their love of transcending good. That is a friendship of character. Their love of wisdom, one could say. You know, that's the meaning of philosophy. Philosophy means the love of wisdom. Um, so these are friendships of philosophy, one could say. When Proverbs 18.24 says that a man of many companions may come to ruin, I picture friendships of the first two kinds, utility and pleasure. But friendships of character are the truest form of friendship. 
and they're the ones that survive adversity. And that is what Lady Wisdom is trying to instruct us in. So first, not all friendships are the same. But second, because real friendships are based not on utility or on pleasure, but rather on the love of wisdom, which you heard last week was Christ, they will speak the truth to you when others will not. Okay? True friends speak the truth to you when others will not. Even if it may be uncomfortable or difficult to navigate, it is better to receive wounds of a friend than flattery of an enemy. How many of you have experienced something like that? Wounds of a friend that you would not trade for anything? I certainly have. The best friends are the ones who speak the hardest words to you sometimes. So what are we supposed to do as Christians? Thinking about friendship. What are friendships like as Christians? Relationships in the church should all have at least the potential for real friendship. For friendships of character. If Jesus is truly the wisdom and the power of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, and we are the people who love and follow Jesus, who love God, then we should all have the ability to relate to one another around that central shared vision of true and transcendent goodness of Jesus. And Proverbs calls such friends closer than a brother. And Paul used that same imagery for the church. We are mutually bound to one another through the body of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Through wisdom made known in us. Through revelation as well as through rationality. So this is what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12 about the way that Christians relate to one another. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do, all, do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So for Paul, the result of Christ's lordship in the church isn't just harmony, but unity of his body, the church, and truly unity within himself that makes membership of each other possible. Such that they're members of the body of Christ, but also truly and deeply belong to one another. Not just people associated with each other, but people who belong to one another. We're supposed to love one another with brotherly affection, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, live in shalom, with peace, with all people. Now, the logic is here that if we are one body, our well-being is actually tied up together. That we can't be well on our own. Which again, is what we're all finding out. Right? We cannot be well on our own. Archbishop Rajay, who I worked for for many years, said, Descartes said, I think, therefore, I am. But as Christians, we should say, I am because you are. That we belong one another. Now, churches are supposed to be those kinds of places. 
They're supposed to be places where we know and are deeply known by others. We're not just a group of people with a shared utility, right? We're not just people who have a shared affection for something. Again, like, you know, like a club of people who play with toy trains, which by the way, the Surgeon General more or less thinks we should do. The Surgeon General's uh, advice in all this is we need to have more uh, associations of friendships of pleasure. We need to have cooking classes, we need to have a rec center where people can hang out with one another, because in his mind, all friendships are equal. Which also makes sense if there's no transcending good. If there is no transcending good, the best kinds of friendships you can really have are ones of pleasure or utility. There needs to be a sense of transcending good for us to have friendships of character. Friendships of character. So churches are supposed to be those places. We should be people who recognize in one another the image not just of God but of redemption. And we should see our own redemption reflected in one another as a reassurance of our faith. That is the very nature of the character of Christian relationships. And that's what's always happening around us, right? No. This isn't always the way that that happens, is it? I'm looking out at you all, and I have heard stories, many stories from all of you, about the ways that other Christians and church leaders have harmed you. Stories are manifold. Friedrich Nietzsche said that he would find it easier to believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked just a little more redeemed. And in many ways, it is principally because the church has such a high calling and has so much power in our lives that it also has the capacity to harm us so deeply. It is because of its greatness that it can be so painful when it goes wrong. Your father has, can harm you far more deeply than a random man on the street with his words, correct? And the church is our mother. And when she does not treat us motherly, in motherly ways, it harms us. And this is perhaps why sometimes we have decided it's just not worth it. So many Christians increasingly are choosing to be Christians and not go to church. It's just about them and Jesus. They've been harmed too many ways, too many times. And that makes sense because relationships are really, really hard. Especially deep ones. Real relationships of character, as Aristotle put it, are difficult. And this is perhaps why, given technology to function on our own and not have to interact with people, we have increasingly just chosen to avoid relationships altogether. We are more and more capable of being lonely, and so we continually choose loneliness over community because we are scared. Understandably, relatably scared. Because it is a fearful Thing to be seen and known. The very first thing Adam and Eve do after the fall is cover themselves up, right? So that they might not be fully seen. And the echoes of that still resonate in our souls. 
However, I would encourage us not to let our wounds keep us from real life together in the church. Life is too short to play it safe forever. And the alternative will kill you. But you might be thinking, is this, that this is some high-minded, wonderful, sort of philosophical idea of a church that's supposed to get together. Sure, theologically, I can see that this is something we're supposed to do. I get what Paul's trying to say. But, like, does this actually work? Like, what difference does this actually make? Come on. Like, in the face of all these social struggles, like, what, I mean, does, do, does actually getting together and worshiping do anything to my life? Aside from something I'm supposed to inherit in heaven? Well, the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. The Human Flourishing Project at Harvard focuses on just this sort of question, looking at the social and public health implications of religious adherence. The associate, I think actually maybe two associate directors are in this room right now. Um, uh, Brendan Case is one of my best friends. We've known each other for 13 years. And his boss, Tyler, is the chair of, a chair of epidemiology at Harvard. And the chart that I'm about to show you comes from extensive longitudinal data, which I think means that it was collected over a long period of time from a very large data set. Okay? Um, Brendan often says that one of his chief uh, pet peeves is when people say, well, Correlation is not correlation is not causation. He's like, I know, this is why we do so much work trying to get the data right. Well, this is what they found. Okay? When they compared weekly church attenders to never attenders, perhaps the most striking one is the first. There was a 33% reduction in death. So people who went to church every week were 33% less likely to die in the sample group than the people who never attended church. Can you imagine if, if there was any other thing in life that had that kind of correlation? Like if eating a particular food, for instance, were to give you that kind of health benefit, we would be hearing nothing about, like, about anything else, right? The Surgeon General would have titled the paper that he put out, please eat this food, right? Well, going to church every week has that kind of effect on your life. And each of these are powerful. Church attendance doesn't make us immune to the trials and travails of life, but it actually makes a concrete impact. Your marriage is 50% more likely to stay together, and you are 84% less likely to commit suicide if you go to church every week. Note as well that the study looked at church attendance, not stated beliefs. Right? It's measuring faith in action. People who have communities of people they're spending time with. Right? And so is the church painful? Is it imperfect? Is it tragic? Absolutely. The church is all of those things. And it's something that we all have to reckon with. Is it disappointing at times because sinners are, people are sinners like us? For sure. But despite all of that, it is a transformative thing in our lives. It has a transformative impact on people who get together in rooms like this to worship Jesus. The gifts of Christ's body are not just ethereal. They're palpable and concrete in our everyday lives. 
And at root, it comes down to knowing and being known by others. Allowing yourself to be seen and known, even as you are seen and known by Christ Jesus, who is, after all, our first friend. A friend who would lay down his life for us, which is the very definition of love. And when we invite people to come to be a part of this little outpost of new creation called Church of the Cross, we are inviting them into something which can transform their lives here and now as well as in the age now. But how are we actually going to cultivate that kind of community? What does it take for us to know and be deeply known by others here in Boston? Well, I want to propose three core virtues, three core things that allow for the body of Jesus to cultivate these kinds of relationships. The first, courage. First is courage. It's scary to be seen, right? Well, this might be called vulnerability for a purpose. Brene Brown um, is a, know, sort of an, a popular author. And she talks about vulnerability a lot, um, and courage and vulnerability being sort of the same thing. And I think probably that's not quite right. I think it has to be vulnerability on purpose. Courage is being vulnerable because something else matters, right? It takes courage to be known by others and to know others in turn. And it takes courage to be vulnerable with someone because it's worth it. We have all been burned by people, but the calling to carry the cross is, by its very nature, one of courage for the sake of restored relationships, of vulnerability for the sake of unity. I am not sure you noticed, um, but this church has uh, grown quite a bit over the last couple of years, blessedly, right? When Church of the Cross started, I think in 2011, or 10, or something like that, it was a tiny group of people praying in an upstairs room, and there was no place to hide. <laughs> okay? If you came to one of those prayer meetings, there was no hiding. Right? But one of the functions of a church that grows, and grows quite as quickly as you all are, again, praise Jesus, is that it is easy to slip into the back row and not know. It's easy to simply come into the back and leave. But I'm inviting you to do something that's harder than that. Have the courage to be known. Have the courage to see and be seen. And it's terrifying. But it's worth it. So courage. Courage is the first virtue. Second is patience. We have to be patient with one another. Part of the process of getting to know each other is also to receive one another as we are. With all of the strange idiosyncrasies and quirks that we have, right? Like, all of us are quirky, strange individuals, right? And part of the process of receiving one another is having the patience to not just be with people who are exactly like us. We have to be patient to get to know each other, 
and ultimately to allow each of us to open up and be known as we can. Because it also takes people different amounts of time to be open with one another. You may be willing to be vulnerable with someone, and it will take a very long time for them to reciprocate. And we just have to be patient with one another. You never know what people have gone through in order to put them in the state of mind that they have or the response that they have to church. But if I've learned anything over the last 10 years of ministry, it's that people are always dealing with more than you think. Always. Always. So, courage. Patience. And finally, generosity. Whenever we think of generosity, we think of giving money. But that is not what I'm talking about here. Although, all of you should give to Church of the Cross. Um, I'm talking about being charitable. Charitable in how we receive one another, and how we receive one another's words and actions. Because all too often, we quickly ascribe motivations to one another that are not there. It is way harder to understand what's happening in someone's mind than you think. And too often, we are comically off the mark when we make those assumptions. The generosity of mind that I'm talking about requires us to receive one another in the best light possible. To assume the best of one another's actions and intentions, even when it seems plain as day that they don't have good ones. All too often when we do this, when we don't give each other generosity, it's because of our own insecurities. Okay? We think someone is stuck up because deep down we're intimidated by some aspect of who they are, which inflames our own feelings of inadequacy and manifests themselves in criticism of that person. Right? And so the solution is to be relentlessly almost logically generous in how we receive one another. Because over a course of time, it is, it is remarkable what a difference it makes. Also, it's a much better way to live. Like, living a life where you're just deciding to assume the best of people, especially in a, state, in a place like a church, means that you're not allowing yourself to go down rabbit trails of sort of bitterness and criticism in your own heart all the time. And what you find is that giving up all of that stuff makes you feel so much better. Generosity is a form of love. To will the good for one another, which is central to who we are as the church. So when we look out at the world around us, it is a scary place. It's a place of loneliness, a place of isolation. And sometimes those big trends feel like, what on earth can we possibly do to make any difference? But we can, we can see that it is both a call of Scripture to us and a promise that this is what flourishing human life looks like to be together. More than that, the data shows us that when we are together, not in just some random way, but as the body of Jesus, when we are together gathering, that it makes a transformative impact in our lives. Such that this little community, this place, Church of the Cross, 
can completely transform someone's life. And what it requires of us is to be known and deeply known by others as we are known and deeply known by Jesus together. To pursue that with the simple things of courage, patience, and love. Generosity. You have a grand calling and purpose, Church of Cross. And you can make an incredible difference just by being here together and with one another. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are grateful. Lord, we are grateful that you have not left us to our own devices, but Lord, that you have called us and equipped us and sent us the power of your Holy Spirit that we can be transformed not just into individuals but into a body together, a singular living sacrifice being transformed by the renewal of our minds. May we be a people of courage, patience, generosity, and love such that we can see and be seen. And that, Lord, in doing so, we might offer the world the hope that it hungers for. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.